The book of Isaiah is the vision that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It's not an easy book. None of the prophets are. And and a big part of that probably is because we don't know much about who Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were, nor the times in which they lived. And so what does it mean that Isaiah said this or that to them since, since we don't even know who they are? This goes not only for Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but also for all of what we call the minor prophets. Someone asked me last night, so I'll make it clear. That just means the shorter prophets. They're not, they're not smaller in status. They're just shorter books. All the prophets are some of the hardest works in the Bible to get into because their context is just so clouded to us. And to be fair, it's not really your fault. I mean, if you spent more time in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'd probably eventually figure some of it out. But there are many scholars who spend a lifetime trying to figure out when this or that vision goes with what and where, and they can't figure it out. So, so it's tough. It is tough. So we're going to devote ourselves to trying to understand Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, and then we'll, we'll go off and do something else different after Christmas time. But, but in this, a big part of it's going to be coming to terms with the history of Israel. And so to start off this morning, although I do want you to find Isaiah chapter 1 on page 566 in your pew Bible, where you can see what I said a moment ago, verse 1 tells us, that Isaiah saw this vision about Judah and Jerusalem in the days of these four kings. Now, it's about Judah and Jerusalem, not about Israel. This is a big, big hat tip. That tells you part of when this is happening. Remember that under King David, there was one nation, the land of promise, not lived in by Jews, lived in by the people of Israel, among whom Judah was only one tribe. But after the reign of Solomon, his son Rehoboam made some really bad decisions. I should say Solomon did too, and God cursed him with Rehoboam's bad decisions, and the country got split in half. The north was called Israel after that, and the south, which was largely made up of the tribe of Judah, although it did include the tribe of Benjamin, all the Levites, and a number of refugees from every other tribe, that southern kingdom was called Judah. And there's all sorts of tension between these two countries for quite a while. That's what the books of First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles are about. And eventually, Israel, the north, is going to be destroyed while, I hope you remember this, sometime after that, Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon. That's when they start being called Jews. They, from there, 70 years later, will go back to the land of Israel, but it really is the land of Judea, right? Again, Jews, Judah, uh, and they populate that land 500 some odd years after that, Jesus comes around to fulfill the promises. That's the big picture. This then is about Judah and Jerusalem during the time that Israel, the north, will fall to Assyria. That's ultimately what this is about. But it's during the reign of four kings, and these kings reigned for quite a while. So again, Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay, so we're going to do a little like exposure to the Bible right now. Put your finger in page 566. Don't lose that page. But I want you to turn now to page 377. Page 377. This will take you into the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, not a lot of people get into the Chronicles. They're later in the histories. There's a bunch of stuff at the start of First Chronicles that reads a little too much like the book of Numbers, and it tends to turn people off. So unless you're on a full-on Bible reading program, I don't expect you to have found this place in the Bible. But let me tell you, uh, the way that the stories of the Chronicles detail David's life, Solomon's life, Rehoboam's life, and all the kings of Judah, because that's what Chronicles is about. It's about the kings of Judah, is really quite the, the lore-packed fantasy story, only it's not fantasy at all. So if you enjoy reading stories about knights and kings and elves and fairies and all that kind of stuff, well, subtract the fairies and you end up in, in Chronicles. All right, so we've got a lot happen by the time Second Chronicles 26 shows up. But I just want to page through and show you how here's where you can read about Uzziah, who reigns in Judah. Here he is, King Uzziah. Uh, if you turn the page, you'll see chapter 27 talks about Jotham, his son. Chapter 28 gets into Ahaz, the son of Jotham. And chapter 29, you then in, get into Hezekiah. And chapter 29 and then chapter 30, dealing with Hezekiah, has parallel structures later in the book of Isaiah. We won't ever get to that in this series, but, but it is there. So I just want you to see that, that right here in these four chapters, you have everything you kind of need to know about verse one of Isaiah chapter one in, in these years of these kings. Now, uh, I'm not gonna read through all of it right now. Instead, I'll just give you a, a little bit of an overview here. Uh, so uh, Uzziah is one of those kind of little known but really awesome kings. I mean, he just, he does everything right. He, he commits his way to uh, Jesus Christ. He, he commits his way to his king Yahweh, and he follows him with all his heart, just as David did, and he is richly blessed in this. He has uh, one of the widest extensions of the kingdom outside of David and Solomon's reign. That is, people from, or kings from other cities that often would be at odds with Israel, instead are just sending him silver, uh, and just sending him cows, they're like, we like you a lot. Just don't attack us or do anything to us. And he basically has peace on every side. And, and while he has that, he fortifies all of the cities. He builds towers and walls and, and builds storage cities with extra food in case anything would ever go wrong. He's, he's very forward thinking. And he has a certain level of mechanical engineering because we're told that he also develops ballista or, or uh, uh, I'm going to lose the other word for it, not catapults, but uh, they're like catapults, uh, large engines that fling giant projectiles at enemies things that don't show up until the late Middle Ages. He's developing this stuff and putting it on the towers in Jerusalem. Dude's pretty impressive. Uh, and he's so impressive that he decides he's pretty impressive. And this is where things go a little wrong. Uh, he decides that he is not only the greatest king, but therefore, because he's such a great king, he should also act as high priest. And this is, this is not what Deuteronomy and Leviticus say to do. Uh, so he decides he's going to ignore that part. He has the right to go in and burn incense at the altar of incense 
in the temple, which is only for the priests to do. And he's got a whole bundle of priests that try to stop him. They're like, this is not for you. Don't do this. He gets mad. He says, I can do this. And he goes and he does it. And as soon as he does it, he breaks out in leprosy. Leprosy is a skin disease. It's like cancer on the outside of your body. It it is fatal, ultimately, though not fast. Uh, He breaks out in leprosy. It is also unclean. That is, if you are a leper, you are cut off from the people of Israel. You're not allowed to go to the temple. You cannot offer the sacrifices. You are outside of the covenant, kind of. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to hell, but it means you are a picture of those who are going to hell for us later who will see all this as fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So uh, the, the priests who are in the temple with him, when leprosy breaks out on him in the temple, that means the temple is now desecrated by him specifically. They shout, oh my goodness, look what's happening. And this is the good news about Uzziah. He says, you're right. And he runs out of the temple as fast as he can. Uh, that shows, I think, a bit of repentance on his part. He doesn't stop being king for like 15 years. He's going to reign from hidden seclusion. I don't know, a tower, a a room somewhere. He reigns from behind the scenes, but his son Jotham then, who also is little known, but pretty good, uh, he reigns officially out front, but with Uzziah kind of managing stuff from behind. Jotham continues to fortify their storage cities and and make trees and build and extend things. He he does really well, Um, but his son's not such a hot guy. Right, so after Jotham dies, you have this guy Ahaz come in. And Ahaz is the worst of the worst of the worst. Yeah, I mean, Manasseh maybe is worse. But, but Ahaz is super, super bad. And to the level where he begins taking down the altar in the temple and replacing it with an altar to Baal. Right? He, he, he doesn't just like go to the high places and worship at the Asherahs. He brings all this stuff into the temple. He so desecrates the temple that God, of course, is going to say, you're breaking the covenant. I'm getting rid of you guys once and for all. Manasseh really is the one that completes that. That'll come in a little while. But Ahaz is the one after whom, no matter how faithful the kings get in Judah, they can never seem to get the hearts of the people back. Hezekiah, his son, is faithful and brings about a tremendous uh, reformation in his day. Uh, He has an event that happens where the nation of Assyria, which had been contracted with by Ahaz, his father, to help them against northern Israel and Syria, Damascus, who were fighting against Judah. Assyria, after destroying northern Israel at Ahaz's request, decides they want to take Judah too. So they come all the way down and they're at the gates of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is basically stuck there as a young king with just the people in the city. The rest of the land has been ravaged and he's got Isaiah the prophet there with him. And Isaiah says, well, repent, turn to the Lord. Hezekiah does go into the temple. He prays to Jesus. And that very night, the troops of Assyria are destroyed by a host of angels. Assyria flees all the way back to their their home uh, uh, city of Nineveh. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser is the name of this this, uh, emperor. He flees back to Nineveh, and uh, very shortly thereafter that, his sons kill him. And very shortly thereafter that, Assyria, a thousand-year empire, completely collapses. Just completely collapses. Uh, all because they tried to take Judah when God didn't give them Judah. Okay, so so there's some of the big history of all this stuff that's going on behind the book of Isaiah. All right? Now, um, I did want to do something else, and I forgot to do it, so I'm not going to do it right now, but I'm going to tell you about it. You can also find this history in the book of 2 Kings, which in your pew Bible will be on page 321 and following. Don't worry about turning there, but 
But 2 Kings is going to give you the same story, only you're also going to get the history of the north at the same time. Right? So Chronicles gives you the history of the south. Kings gives you the history of north and south in conjunction with each other. One thing that might seriously confuse you, though, if you go and try to look up King Uzziah in 2 Kings, is you'll find out he's not there. He's got a different name. They call him Azariah. Why is that? Well, many ancient kings had multiple names. It's not that rare, actually. Uh, And so all that it means is uh, one resource is using one of his titles, one of his names. One is using a different name, perhaps his birth name versus his coronation name or something like that. In any case, you can see in that section of 2 Kings, though, also how during the lives of these four kings of Judah, while Israel is absolutely collapsing and about to be destroyed, multiple, multiple kings of Israel come and go and come and go, and then they're, they're really, really gone. Again, this is, this is lore, right? This is history. You don't have to be some sort of you know, spectacled history major with a bow tie to, to get into this stuff. Uh, it's good story. It's, it's worth knowing. All right, so find your way back to Isaiah, uh, page 566. And, and we're going to try to then put what we heard read this morning from Isaiah chapter 1 into this context a bit. Although we're also going to face a, a pretty big problem here uh, right away. So I'll just go ahead and start by talking about that. And we are going to dance to another chapter in the Bible. So keep your fingers ready uh, to move around. But so now we know who Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are. Now we know or remember what Judah and Jerusalem are. But before we then get into any of the rest of the text, I got to tell you about one other challenge beside context that the prophets tend to bring you. And that is that even if you know all the history around when they're living, they don't always write stuff in chronological order. That means that chapter one isn't probably the first thing that happens in Isaiah's life as a prophet. And we can be really sure about this one with Isaiah because chapter six, which we're going to look at next week out of order, Because of this fact, chapter 6 is probably the first thing that happens. It's when he gets called to be a prophet. And he has a vision of the cherubim around the throne of God and the cloak of his God's uh, cloak filling the temple and the pillars and the rafters shaking with smoke and holy, holy, holy and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, So it's not in chronological order. Although, and this is true for all the prophets, it's not, not in chronological order. That is... Much of the time, the prophets are in chronological order until they don't want to be, and then they're not. And they don't really care, and they don't tell you this. You're just supposed to be okay with it and be, okay, uh, sure. Now, you could make the case that John's gospel works the same way. That's kind of a side thought there, but you could make that case. All right, so uh, this means for us this morning, chapter 1 is by no means the first thing that Isaiah Caesar writes. It may, in fact, come from very, very late in his work, but it is what he puts as the first thing in his writing down of what he preached, right? So he preached and he preached and he preached, and then some of that, maybe not even all of that, some of that he wrote down. And when he wrote it down and organized it, he put this vision first, Why? Because it came first? No, because it, well, I think, 
it summarizes the entire book. It gives you the whole big picture. Now, as I say entire book, I should also kind of let you know that there are many who think there are two books of Isaiah. Chapter 1 through 39 is 1st Isaiah, and chapter 40 through 66 is 2nd Isaiah. They think this because the theme and the style is so different between these two books. And of course, then, those who are progressive liberals and often atheists think that means Isaiah didn't write any of it. It's from two different guys who wrote much later and blah, 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 just stop listening when they start talking that way. What it means, though, probably is that Isaiah did write one big section at a certain time in his life and then another section later in his life. We can break it down even more than that, though, because within chapters 1 through 39, you have a very clear break between chapters 12 and 13, which is why we're going to look at chapters 1 through 12 and then stop there. Right? We're really looking at Isaiah's first little segment of, of his grand prophecy. And so let me just give you that, that kind of big picture here. If you're ever going to read through the book, chapters 1 through 12 are dealing with the lives of Uzziah, the year Uzziah dies, actually, Jotham, 15 years of his reign after Uzziah is dead. That might be wrong, not 15 years. I'd have to double check that number around that amount of time. And then specifically Ahaz's reign. And much of chapter 7 through 12 will deal with Ahaz even specifically. In fact, around Christmas time, we're going to get to Isaiah chapter 7, where he's going to say, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And he will call his name Emmanuel. Right? I know you've heard that before. Well, he's saying that to Ahaz. Yeah? So, so we're going we're gonna to get there. But again, context, where does this all fit? Chapters 1 through 12 are largely dealing with the life and times of Jotham and Ahaz, which, as we're going to see, is a time of apparent success with underlying rebellion that's going to boil up into complete rebellion, that's going to lead to them absolutely almost losing it all with Assyria at the gates of Jerusalem and Hezekiah having to repent for the sake of all the people. All right. One more tidbit of like historical fact, if, you're, if you are one of those nerds with the bow tie, you're going to really like this one, um, that the year that Uzziah dies, uh, the year that, I, that Isaiah starts all this, because King Isaiah, Uzziah dies, um, is probably the year or next to the year that a guy named Romulus was born. Now, if you haven't heard of Romulus, I know you've heard of the city he founded. It's called Rome. So we're dealing with the time before Rome, but not too long before Rome, right? So for you history nerds, there you go. All right. Now, next piece, and we're going to dance a little bit through the Bible here again. Just look at verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1, where it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. If you're like me, before I read about this in a commentary, I thought, well, that's nice. Ah, that makes sense. You know, hero heavens, hero earth, okay, that's good. Uh, well, when I looked into a commentary, which, of course, I try to do whenever I'm going to preach about stuff I don't know as well, I try to dig as much as I can on it, I realized or I learned something I should have known, that that's not even Isaiah. I mean, it is. He wrote it. 
but he's actually quoting Moses. So another one of the pieces of the Bible study that you do that's real important is that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament all the time. And the Old Testament works the same way. The prophets are always quoting Moses and Solomon, interestingly enough. Yeah? Uh, they're always quoting David as well. There's a history of revelation in which those who come later don't ever change what's being said. They build on what's being said. And you kind of know what Isaiah's main point is just from this quote, if you know where to go and look for the quote. And so that's, that's what we're going to do here. So again, hear, O Evans, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's on page 173 of your pew Bible. And I'm just going to read a a couple of selected verses from this. But if you'd like to go there, uh, you can follow along and see. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses, at the end of the second giving of the law, before Moses dies, he reestablishes the covenant with all of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. And here is sort of the what you should expect or what Moses has already been told will happen. You'll hopefully see in chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Right? There's the quote. There's the reference point. So what Isaiah wants you as a faithful Jew to do, uh, living in Jerusalem, is to hear, Oh, that's Moses. Oh, I know that whole section. Oh. Right? Because that's really what you should get from this section is, oh, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't going to be good, what's coming next. Um, another kind of aside here, for those of you who are curious, uh, heaven and earth, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So to reference heaven and earth is more than just kind of an offhanded thing. It, it is, in fact, at this point, calling all of creation, seen and unseen, to be a witness to what has happened in the past for the sake of we who are present. And Isaiah is calling Moses and the heavens and earth to witness to what he's saying. Moses is calling heaven and earth to witness to what he's saying. Uh, we are here now today with the same heaven and the same earth surrounding us. No matter what else is going on politically this week, it's the same heaven, the same earth. Uh, and they are witnesses to these things. Okay, so uh, here's just a couple of the verses. Skim down to verse 5. This will give you the flavor a little bit. Yeah, uh, This is Moses talking to, to Israel after 40 years in the wilderness. They have dealt corruptly with him. That's God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Right, look at verse 20. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Verse 23, and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. Verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel. And there is no understanding in them. Give ear, O heavens, listen up, O earth, be a witness for me, uh, means, hey, God has spoken and man has not heard. And now God is going to do what he does to those who turn up their nose at his mercy, his grace, 
his faithfulness and his steadfastness. Right, so look back at the rest of verse 2. It'll sound awful familiar. Verse 2 of chapter 1 in Isaiah. Right, it sounds just like what we just heard. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Uh, remember now, this is probably dealing with Ahaz's lifetime, but also the overflow from Jotham. He's saying that all of those high places, all of the idolatry, all of the wanting to be like the other nations, all of the discontent with being a people set apart by God for a different lifetime that will come in a different age, all of that now, he's not going to ignore our rejection of it. He chose people to be his sons. See what love the Father has lavished upon them to make them children of God, but they don't want it. Right? Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. That's potent stuff in, in my mind. Uh, that, that animals are more faithful than we are. That humanity has this problem that, that we don't recognize our creator. And even when we do, we have a tendency to laud him with our lips, but keep our hearts far from him. And Isaiah now is confronting Judah and Jerusalem about this. Why? Just to destroy them? No. What's the result going to be? Repentance and an extension of life. Israel in the north will be destroyed, but Judah will have good days yet to come. The reigns of Josiah and Hezekiah are glorious days. Days of faithfulness and praise, which means days of family and friends and feasting and crops and great weather and peace on all sides. Days that we Americans would love to see again, huh? Days in which we say it is Christian America. Days in which we know our God is for us and not against us. Because I'll tell you, he's against us right now and for very, very good reason. The blood that is on the hands of this country. Uh, you know, I, it's not in the bulletin, but th this week there is a protest taking place outside the building where Governor Pritzker will be visiting to promote uh, the elections, but really to promote the abortion clinic that he wants to put into our city. Blood is on our hands. Isaiah is preaching chapter 1 and the rest of the book so that there will be repentance. We are then going to be looking at this more and more over the next couple of weeks so that we can tune our hearts to that kind of prayer and praise. So we cannot be like those who he begins to condemn. We're not going to go through this verse by verse, but notice all of that stuff about I hate your new moons. I hate your solemn assemblies, your prayers. I'm going to turn a deaf ear to them. Now, to put that in context for us, that's like we show up at Christmas with the beautiful trees. We're going to have them, you know, and the, and the greenery and the lighting and everything. And then we have a prophet walk in and say, Christmas is evil. I'm sick of it. Stop it. Just go away. That's, that's what God's saying. Right? That's how frustrated he is, not by Christmas, but by using Christmas for selfish ends and forgetting what it's really about, which you want a taste of that, just walk through Walmart or Home Depot in the Christmas department. You might be able to find a crush for sale, but even there, 
even there, right? So we live at a time not so different. It, it looked really good. Christian America, look at us go. God bless America and one nation under God, but under the surface. For generations, we have had progressive atheism boiling up, and now it has taken over and turned into licentious insanity. So who are we? Are we those who just get pushed aside, or are we those who know the prophetic word of God and know, therefore, that our God does hear us, that we are his children, that he's put us here at this time to call out on behalf of our friends and neighbors to be witnesses who will either convert them or be persecuted, but in persecution then to know that nothing can stand against us because God, even if he brings his wrath upon this nation, will reserve you as a remnant, you and your children after, that he does it only to make it so that his faith will shine again amongst mankind. And that message, which again, Isaiah is going to bring us in a variety of ways, is one I believe here at St. Paul, we, we are meant for right now. We are meant not to be those who cower and shrink back, but those who say, yes, I will reason with God. I will hear his offer. I will hear him promise that my sins shall be wiped away, that I shall be clean and gleaming, that the coal of his righteousness will touch my lips and make them pure and able to speak even though all around me many wicked offer up false prayers and prayers which are not heard and continue in their wicked ways. No, not for us. Not for us, St. Paul. In the name of Jesus, amen.